I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Ancient Office Hours by the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing, present ponderings. Next stop is... Ancient Office Hours, at a library lost in the sands of time. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 74 of Ancient Office Hours. I'm very excited to bring you this week's delightful conversation with Dr. Jackson Crawford, an Old Norse expert and full-time public educator on YouTube. He received his PhD in Scandinavian Studies from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and his MA in Linguistics from the University of Georgia. For eight years, he was full-time faculty in Scandinavian studies, teaching courses in Norse language, myth, and sagas at UCLA, UC Berkeley, and the University of Colorado at Boulder. In recent years, he has been an Old Norse language and runes consultant on major multimedia projects, such as Ubisoft Montreal's Assassin's Creed Valhalla and Disney's Frozen. In this episode, we discussed the unique challenges to being a full-time YouTube public scholar in Old Norse studies, his experience on consulting for major Hollywood and gaming projects, and why people associate Norway and Denmark with Vikings more than Iceland, from where most of the primary texts originate. I hope you enjoy this episode, and if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating and review us on Apple or Spotify. You can also subscribe to our Patreon, as this will allow us to reach more people and make more exciting ancient world content. Enjoy! Great. Thank you so much for joining me this morning. And I want to just start you off with what I hope is going to be a really softball question, which is... How did you get into the study of the ancient world? Where did your passion for like ancient Norse culture come from? Well, it started out as an interest in ancient life. So I grew up west of Denver, uh, down the canyons, and uh, there's a lot of paleontological sites and a lot of local interest in fossils and dinosaurs and such. And I grew up as a really obsessive dinosaur kid as did one of my best friends who actually became a paleontologist. But in middle school, when I had to decide what language I wanted to take, I took Latin because the dinosaur names were in Latin. And I got fascinated with ancient languages and how those languages had evolved into the languages of today. And so that led me to self-study of Old English when I stumbled on a copy of an Old English grammar in a Denver bookstore and then uh, 
to Old Norse and actually a lot of other Indo-European languages in college and grad school. But I specialized in Old Norse at the PhD level because I was really interested in kind of the duality of how it was both a very close relative of English, but also one that had gone off very much in its own direction. That's really cool. I wonder, did you, I I feel like most people have to go through like a Shakespeare, Beowulf, Canterbury Tales phase in, in school at some level. Was that also kind of a hook? Were you just fascinated by how this language thing worked when reading these these sort of epic or just well-known pieces that we have today? Language was the big hook. Um, I never had a Chaucer or Shakespeare phrase, really. I mean, like in my 30s, I maybe had a very short Shakespeare phase, but I don't think that counts. I did read Beowulf in high school on my own. But I think Chaucer was too cursed by actually being taught in high school. You know, anything that was actually taught in an English class, I didn't want anything to do with. So, no, it was mostly the language itself. I did come to the literature kind of independently because I had this weird class in seventh grade that was called adolescent literature. Actually, all we did in that class was read. The teacher mostly just let people read whatever they wanted. But for whatever reason, she decided that I was her special project. So she made me read a lot of the classics and I read Edith Hamilton's mythology, which is mostly about Greek mythology, but does have a little appendix about Norse mythology. And so that was my first independent introduction to that. But the main thing that stuck with me from that was the quotes from Avamal, the poem of Odin's wisdom, not so much the actual stories or anything like that well the language usually is a big hook whether that's latin or a different ancient language but since you did start with latin because i think a lot of us who are into the ancient fields we, we do start with paleontology it definitely starts with the dinosaurs i went through a huge dinosaur phase where i was like oh all i'm gonna do is dig up old dinosaur bones it's gonna be great and then obviously that didn't happen so have, have you been on a dinosaur dig no i the closest i've come to is i grew up in chicago and so at the oh no what museum was it i don't think it was field museum it was a different museum but they had like a simulated little dinosaur diggy exhibit where you could go and they gave you travels and then they teach you to sort of dig up fake bones well, I've, I've been on the real thing um it's pretty cool so i'll do a, a, a semi-plug you know we do digs in the summer uh just about every weekend we take people up from the morrison museum in, in colorado up to uh, glen rock wyoming and do real dinosaur digs so uh, you really can do it. It's a lot of fun. Well, now I need to look into this because that sounds really fun. And I I would enjoy it coming to it later when I'm not a, a dreamy 10-year-old ten, ten or something like that, dreaming of just randomly digging up bones. But having started with Latin, because that's you know what, what uh, we really use um, for scientific names and terms, did you ever have such an interest in latin that you considered for a second going into classics yes i did my undergraduate degree is in classics i spent one semester as a classics master student before i was a linguistics master student so yeah i did consider it i did latin and greek although 
I was in the weird position of liking Latin better as a language, liking Greek literature better. Maybe that's not such an uncommon position, but I don't think it's uncommon. I feel like I have enough friends in classics that they had also things where, oh, well, I like this language better, but I like the, you know, the tragedians and this other one better. So I don't think that's the strangest, but yeah, it's a, it's a hard world going, going through, but, um, it's pretty cool that you switched and kind of got off the classics is so single-minded. I feel like, cause when you're on classics, they just tell you, okay, you pick up the two languages and then you kind of have to pick one eventually. And then you go and do the X, Y, or Z. So to have the wherewithal to be like, you know, what? I'm going to jump off and I'm going to switch into something else like linguistics. When you're like, that's a whole nother world. You can just veer into that's, that's pretty cool. I want to know though, once you, eventually got off the classics track and decided your home was linguistics. And then when you got into your PhD program, or actually even before then you picked up that master's, but then can you walk me through a bit, the process of deciding how, like what you wanted to specialize in for a PhD program? Was that like a very easy decision or did it require a lot of sitting and being like, oh, okay, so I have a lot of options because I have this linguistical background and I, you know, there's a huge buffet here. Well, I don't know that I ever felt that I really had a lot of options. I, I guess there's a few aspects to this. So I, I did my master's degree at the University of Georgia and, and the linguistics program there run then and now by Jared Klein, um, the finest teacher I've ever had. And he insisted that all of us, no matter what, have a firm background in all possible ancient Indo-European languages. And we were a really socially tightly bound group. We all really liked each other. We all hung out outside of class. And we were just this intolerable gang of Indo-Europeanist grad students. And I think part of actually what shaped all of our fates is that we were all taking all of these languages and eventually, you know, almost like a superhero team or something, we each adopted kind of one part of it as ours. So we wound up kind of having like an Anatolian guy, an Indic guy, a sort of classical languages guy. And I just sort of, by my longstanding interest in it, gravitated toward being the Norse slash Germanic guy, although there was kind of another old English guy. And so my master's thesis was actually in the historical syntax of Icelandic. My advisor, Dr. Klein, kind of told everyone that he was pretty good at reminding us that, you know, we might just be marching off into a jobless wasteland. But he, uh, he did say that he thought people had a better chance if they specialized in something. So he said, what you want to do is you either want to apply to a linguistics department as the X language guy, or you want to apply to that language department as the linguistics guy. So I did both. And I assume just based on percentages from when I'd applied to my master's or percentages from, you know, dating or whatever, that, you know, you, you shotgun out there and you know one place that's going to accept you maybe so i figured it was exactly what was going to happen one of these places will accept me and that's just what i'm going to do and that is what happened so i got accepted at the university of wisconsin at the scandinavian department it was at the time a distinct department it isn't anymore and i just went in as sort of the 
historical linguistics guy in the Scandinavian part. It's interesting that you did have to go through the linguistics route, which is not uncommon to hear these days for people when they're trying to get to a certain place or trying to position themselves closer to a certain specialty. But I'm I'm curious to know whether you've noticed a marked change, either for better or for worse, between when you were applying and now, like when advising students. Are there more departments of Scandinavian studies around now for students to be able to target and say, ah, okay, well, this is where I can go. Or have you seen sort of the trend and availability of these programs sort of follow the rest of the humanities trend where there are fewer. So if you wanted to try to go into something like classics or Scandinavian studies, you do actually have to go in through a a different department that may be bigger and sort of encompass you. Yeah, that's absolutely been the trend. I know of at least two distinct Scandinavian departments that have collapsed uh, and folded into Usually what they do is they put German, Slavic, and Scandinavian together. So that's what happened at Wisconsin. Uh, That's how it is at Colorado, the last institution I was at. Usually Scandinavian is in the weird position of being this sort of unacknowledged piggy bank for German and Slavic because you get very few majors out of it, but you get some super popular classes out of it, right? You know, lots of people want to take Vikings for their history credit or or Norse myth for a lit credit or something. So more or less, uh, you wind up with departments that just look at it that way. They're not super willing to take grad students in Scandinavian. Yeah, it's it's probably worse overall. Although I don't know that it's, I don't know that it's worse, but I, I suspect that it's broadly worse. I mean, that would unfortunately track with just the current trend for the humanities in general. Unfortunately, just with programs being cut everywhere in the world and to not even have it be just a unique problem here. It's everywhere, unfortunately. And it's weird because the interest is so high. Um, people people are always surprised. You know, I'm, I'm actually with, with strangers or, you know, new people I meet. I'm always fairly reluctant to bring up what I do because there's such a uh, predictable set of statements and questions that come in response to it. One of which is, Oh, that's so niche. I can't imagine anyone could make a living off of that. It's like, I don't know. I taught the second biggest classes at the University of Colorado during the three years I was there. It, one could hypothetically make a living off of uh, the royalties for the translations I do of Old Norse stuff. I mean, not a great living, but you could make a living. You know, the, the public interest is enormous in this stuff. But yeah, there's not. But finding the money is damn hard. And I wonder, it seems like that encounters the same problem that most classics departments do, which is like the big intro myth class, right? Is the biggest, most popular. You get 400 some students in it if you are at an institution that big. But then when you want to offer like the more targeted upper level courses, those don't tend to fill up, which, I mean, it makes sense. But it's a, it's unfortunate, isn't it? It's hard to know what to make of where to go from there. You know, I think I have found sort of a way forward by taking that engagement out of the classroom by saying, you know, a lot of the people who want this information are, are not people who even can come to the classroom um, and trying to find them outside of there. But uh, not everyone has the interest or the will or the resources. Maybe I guess resources are probably the least of a barrier there to a, uh, 
to reach out to the public that way. I mean, gatekeeping is a big problem in academia everywhere, but it is interesting. You know, I talk a lot about public scholarship, both on the show and just to people I know, whoever I meet, I'll talk a lot about it. But also, I think it goes outside of people who know what it takes within the academic circles. Public academia is, public education really, is not as easy, I think, as we assume it might be. I mean, because I meet a lot of people who say, oh, you know, someone is really good at this. Why don't you just offer classes to the public? Someone will take it. The interest is there, blah, blah, blah. But it's actually quite hard. And the the time investment, so it's it's quite an interesting place to be, I would imagine, that if you're an educator and you're like, there is interest, and I know that actually the, the biggest enthusiasts and people who take this are not going to be at an institution, oh, but I don't have the time or the energy to do this. So that then kind of leaves us with the conundrum, right, of, well, how do we go forward? How do we move forward? Because there is a push toward more sort of public education but the more we think about it it's not really sustainable well i think you could probably relate to something that i tell a lot of people who are considering this uh doing something like i do on youtube or you know a podcast or something like that as i say it's it takes a lot of pushing that rock up the hill to get it to start rolling on its own down the hill and the biggest problem you're going to find is once you get that rock rolling down the hill, it will eventually bottom out, and then you've got to push it again. Like it's not like these are not self-perpetuating you know, mechanisms. Uh, you have to continually put effort in. You have no idea, unless you're a brilliantly wiser person than I am, what's going to do well, right? I put out two videos a week. My best guesses about what videos will reach a lot of people are invariably wrong, and vice versa. I go through slumps I can't explain because I think I'm giving people exactly what they want. And then I have hits I can't explain because I think I literally put this together on a bus ride. So I, it's, it's just unaccountable. And you have to have more psychologically prepared for that first push up the hill. Like, oh, I know that, you know, in the first six months, it's not like I'm going to be able to pay my bills with this. But you have to be ready for what happens after your first big quote unquote hit and you don't have another quote unquote hit for another six months like do you can you get yourself through that and i think that's where most people drop out it's not that first push it's the later push that's a really good point because sometimes the first push up the hill is so hard most people give up there right they don't even get to the point where they're ready for it to roll down and then have to figure out okay what comes next so it's um it's an interesting position if you even get past that first push it's really really hard major props to people who can make it that far because i know it's terrifying enough to think oh what comes next but if you've made it to that point my biggest problem is i never know when to give up on anything that i start doing so i had enough of that you know obsessive energy to keep pushing through when this wasn't my job right when i was teaching full-time and writing books and trying to get stuff published you know not everyone has that and then some people especially um, on different adjunct track jobs are working so many different jobs that the, no matter how much energy they have, they're never going to find the time. You also have to have somewhere in your time, some, some corner, some hour that you can put into this sort of yeah, thing. No, I totally agree. Also though, luckily when dealing with the ancient world, 
there's no shortage of good materials that you can take and do something exciting with, which is a nice feature of what we study. But again, it's hard. It's hard to reach people. You never know what's going to land. So a question I see a lot of academics really grappling with, and we spend a lot of time oscillating back and forth between, is are our fates as we go forward increasingly intertwined with like media projects, films, TV shows? Because I feel like Yes, there's a big interest in things like, you know, Old Norse and Vikings. But I remember that I didn't hear people talking so much about this and, and like serious interest until things like the Vikings TV show came up or The Last Kingdom and, and some of these big shows. And then suddenly everyone's talking about it. And then suddenly I know 10 people who have never shown any interest whatsoever beyond just, oh, the Vikings were cool, I guess, to... Where, where, can I, where can I find a class on this? Where can I find resources? What, what books should I read? And I'm like, so all these questions apparently were sparked because they saw something they liked on TV. Um, and that happens obviously with ancient Greek and, and Roman things too. So is it kind of like, are, we, are our fates tied together or is there a way where people in academia can find something that's not just relying on, on major media to sort of further interest mainstream public interest is so fickle there is some chicken and egg issue here there's a a big ish and growing subculture that really identifies itself with vikings and old Norse stuff and there's a lot of different versions of the subculture but you can find it out there i don't know if they physically gather anywhere very often but they certainly find each other on the internet those people are always kind of ready for this kind of material how much the general public at large is ready for it. I think that depends year to year. And some of these things blow up for a while and then recede, and some of them just stay blown up. I mean, I feel like another thing we talked about earlier, dinosaurs kind of started blowing up around Jurassic Park and never really stopped being popular. I think Viking stuff started blowing up around when the Lord of the Rings movies came out, and I don't think that's really stopped being popular. But by contrast, I feel like there was a really big boom of interest in Sparta and ancient Greece around when 300 came out. And I feel like that's kind of receded. I don't see as much interest in that outside of a few subcultures. So I don't think you can predict this stuff. You know, I've been attached to some movie and video game projects and TV shows, but I'm pretty hesitant to talk so much about that, that I'm identifying myself with it very much because I feel like you just never know how populous how popular stuff will stay, how much it will, you know, continue to be of interest to people, or will it actually become vilified one way or another? You know, I just think it's, it's just too unpredictable. And also, by the way, when I try to make videos to latch on to something that seems popular at the moment, you know, a Thor movie comes out, so I try to make a movie about Thor or whatever. You know, I worked on Assassin's Creed Valhalla, so I try to release a video about that when Assassin's Creed Valhalla comes out. There's almost no connection between me doing a real topical video and, and getting actual like lots of views. Um, so I don't, I don't think that we should attach ourselves too much to that kind of thing. Such an interesting perspective because I have talked to some of the game devs for different games. Um, I talked to one writer who worked on both Odyssey and Valhalla. So she had the unique perspective of looking at two very 
different cultures, but also that would appeal to the same sect of people, can we say? I mean, the, the, the ancient world enthusiasts. It's, it is interesting to come from this perspective of saying, you know, I've done the big media thing. And to have your name on something big like an Assassin's Creed game, too, I feel like gives you a unique perspective because there's a ton of ac- young academics I know who are like just raring to, you know, sink their claws into a big project like that and hope that it sort of takes them somewhere. But it's true. I mean, people are changeable and you never know what will hit. I My own journey just with discovering more outside of the ancient Mediterranean is so tied closely to that game, I will say. And I and I wonder whether so much of, of public interest is not driven so much just by the, the genre itself that you're doing, but it, but it has to have some kind of um, almost like emotional connection of... of feeling invested like you're doing it right because i've I've watched vikings i've watched the last kingdom now i i love both shows but in having watched them you know i never kind of came away thinking you know it'd be kind of fun to learn old norse or take a a, a couple classes to, to learn more i just said you know this is a cool time period that i'm interested in but i'll leave it here but when valhalla came out that was the first time that I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to invest like 400 hours into platinuming the game. So after like 400 hours with this thing, I was super invested and I was like, darn it, I'm going to go and I'm going to find some classes and I'm going to learn more and do all the things and even look for master's programs in old Norse studies. But I don't know if I'm the majority or the minority if you think that getting better old norse into a tv show or something is going to increase interest in old norse i mean remind yourself when the last time you watched a star wars movie and decided to go learn how to build rockets was i mean that that filter does not produce that many people also my handwriting is in i think like the highest grossing motion picture of all time like what is that do for me you know like nobody knows that you tell people that and the reaction is not wow let me thank you will bankroll your salary it's oh first time you get approached by some big hollywood or video game studio project it's kind of like wow you know my name is going to be on this thing and then the second time you're like yeah my name is going to be on this thing in a place nobody sees it and so i better just make enough money to make this worth my time and that's kind of it. I mean, like the excitement kind of bleeds out of it when you realize that it doesn't, it doesn't really contribute to your influence or whatever. It's, it's an interesting point because I know, and I've had this discussion. I'm in like a Twitter classics group. Let's call it just group. I don't know what it actually is, but we recently had this great discussion on, would you rather try to get a big break and have like one massive entity approach you and try to get your work there so you can use that as a credit or is kind of the future of this public scholarship thing, like almost like a crowdfunded crowdsourced approach where like, yes, it's a lot of time and effort because obviously, and I think as I, I know you've spoken about it in the past on something that I watched, but like, you know, I know trying to do individual translations for people is ridiculous because the volume is going to be huge and you don't have enough time in the world to do so. But this idea, though, of like crowdfunded, if you get enough people because the volume is so high, 
would that end up being, could it end up being more financially and name recognition wise, um, profitable, but also just a better use of, I don't want to say time, but, um, better way to get your name out there. Um, I think crowdfunding and uh, my decade of experience suggests that it is absolutely the way to go. The only media project I ever did that I could have paid my rent with briefly was uh, Assassin's Creed Valhalla. Otherwise, it's only ever been some minor supplement. Crowdfunding, however, I mean, I started, I got on Patreon in mid-2016, and by fall 2019, it was my primary source of income, even above teaching, even above royalties. Uh, and so in 2020, I quit teaching. And so to this day, I mean, I pay my rent and stuff with, with Patreon. That is the closest, obviously, <laughs> that I've ever come to, uh, to, to making, you know, a living with something. And so I do recommend it to people. Academics have a really, really hard time learning the, uh, I guess, the marketing skills that you need to make that work. And I am no exception, and I have never really learned it particularly well. I think I probably leave a lot of stones unturned that I could turn in this crowdfunding world that I just don't think about because I'm not a natural marketer. I'm not a natural salesman, you know. But I try to remind myself to mention Patreon. And of course, I'm very appreciative of the people who support me there. Uh, I've done a lot of experiments with what exactly I should do to kind of pay them back. You know, right now, the biggest thing is they get to come live to the interviews that I conduct with experts and uh, ask their questions. And they also get a monthly Zoom with me where they get to ask stuff about Old Norse. You know, I've tried other things, but mostly the people who get on there are just people who are kind of saying thank you for what you already do. And I mean, I'm a patron myself of, of some things like that. Like, you know, I'm a, I'm a patron of my favorite podcast. And it's just because I think to myself, well, this $5 a month that I give them helps them continue making this podcast so and most people support me in the same spirit it's not they're not there for perks per se so i do encourage creators to try that but it's another thing where for six months you're not going to see much it, it takes really consistent pers persistent effort for a long time when you know you have to turn yourself into kind of a, a, a marketer of yourself and what you do and definitely those skills are not they don't come the most naturally to people who want to kind of hide away right in the stacks and just read the ancient things and translate and work on that kind of stuff. Um, you know, I, I'm a big believer and we're all kind of introverts who like to, to be left on our own, which is why we put ourselves through this school schooling thing. I mean, there's obviously a whole spectrum between absolute introvert and absolute extrovert. No one who gets a PhD is hard against the edge of, the extrovert side of that spectrum, right? I mean, it's just impossible to, to be that research oriented. So these skills typically don't overlap well. And, you know, for me, it, it is something that I've had to semi learn. It, it is to some degree learnable. You know, you only have to do what you're comfortable with. You know, I certainly don't cross a lot of lines that I would be uncomfortable crossing. Although people have suggested that I cross various lines, I'd be uncomfortable crossing. Well, that's the age old issue, isn't it? How far am I willing to go for my craft or my passion? It's, it's a tough one, but I want to turn a little bit for my listeners who are not so up with the 
old Norse world and Scandinavian studies world because most, I mean, I can't get around it. I'm a classicist, so the bend is always classics. So one thing I've been working my way through is, I don't know if you can see it through my filter, but I have your translated copy. This was one of my first, so, so one of the things I did when I, um, I just moved out to LA for a job at UCLA. And one of the things I did once I had access to a nice library was I went out and I took like 20 books out of the library all on like Scandinavian studies, Old Norse, because I was like, okay, now I'm just going to invest myself because I'm finally in a place where I can, I can read the books and I can do the personal research. But I was discovering as I'm starting to read through things, and a lot of my friends are asking, because they're like, this is a new trend for you. You know, what are the the good books to read? What are the sources? What, you know, um, and I definitely found accessing and getting the mythology we have and the the writings it's a it's more difficult than than going to find some some books on classics so for people who are unfamiliar i'm i'm hoping you can walk us through your translated text here just like a brief what is it and also why are these resources so hard to find if you don't kind of know someone who's done it or sure i'll actually i'll I'll take that first part but second part first um it is relatively hard to find good resources about language and literature and myth the experts don't like the public that they think wants it there is this perception within scandinavian faculties and phd programs that like we're the only people who like this who aren't neo-Nazis. Anything you put out into the public, like, remember, a neo-Nazi could read that. It's like, well, it's just like, yeah, those people are there. I've certainly had my problems with them. But they're a pretty small percentage of the public that's interested in this stuff. And if you're trying to keep information out of their hands, what you're actually doing is keeping information out of the hands of a whole lot of good people who then look for information and the information they find may be what some obsessive neo-Nazi puts on a website or what some really self-serving person has put into a a book. I mean, some of the books that are out there, um, they're not by neo-Nazis necessarily, but they may be by really self-serving people who don't have uh, the the expertise they pretend to. So what is the the poetic edda? Iceland was converted to Christianity in about the year 1000. And most of Scandinavia, a little bit before that or a little bit after that. So you have a pretty clean dividing line between pre-Christian and Christian Scandinavia at about the 1000 AD line. But in Iceland, there continued to be a great deal of interest in the pre-Christian myths and stories. This seems to have been mostly an antiquarian interest. Icelanders have a long tradition as a very literate, both in the sense of reading a lot and the sense of just telling stories a lot of people. Uh, and and of people very interested in their own past. And by the 1200s, which was a period of civil war in Iceland, it seems like this sort of crested into this period of producing nostalgic literature. And so they wrote down not only the great sagas of Icelanders, somewhat equivalent to Westerns in a U.S. context, right? They're about a time when Iceland was a frontier and men were men, right? And, you know, they fought things out with a duel rather than less glamorous fighting of their civil war period. But they also wrote down the uh, traditional poems that have been passed down about the Norse gods and the uh, pre-Christian heroes. So you have the Poetic Edda is a compilation of about 30 poems 
I say about 30 because people disagree about exactly where some end and begin, things like that. The first half concerned the Norse gods. So these are our, if you will, most authentic pre-Christian stories about Odin or Loki. And then the last half is about the Volsung heroes, which are, you know, that material is somewhat equivalent to an Iliad. There's also the Prozetta, which uh, anyone who wants to read, I recommend the translation by Anthony Falks, which is marketed somewhat confusingly just under the title Edda. But the prose Edda was written by uh, an individual named Snorri Sturluson in Iceland in the 1220s AD. And he knew many of the poems that made it into the poetic Edda. Uh, he also knew some others that didn't. And so he recounts the mythology in a probably somewhat too cohesive form. He wants to make more sense than it does because a lot of these poems actually contradict each other quite a bit. But uh, his his prose at a, is a valuable source as well. So those two books together are 90, 95% of what we know about uh, the mythology of pre-Christian Scandinavia. Now, I do want to ask, because this is something that I, I think I read or picked up as I'm going through a lot of these books that I have stacked on my desk now, is that unlike Greek mythology, where we have a lot of stories and a lot of just evidence of the ancients talking about their own mythology. And, and so now we have this long literary tradition of, of looking at the mythology and, and for ancient Rome as well. Isn't part of the problem with Norse mythology that the ancients themselves, because they were mostly a storytelling culture, they didn't really write this down. And so by the time it's written down, a lot of the mythology was susceptible to having like a distinctive Christian bend just due to the convert the conversion of Iceland to Christianity. And that's really when they started writing it down. So is it true that we do have kind of a bit of trouble distinguishing, you know, when was something written? Was it written with something else in mind? What, you know, how do we separate and decipher really what the ancients had um, just due to it being written down later? Well, of course. And it's a little bit of a case-by-case problem. With the Prozetta, uh, you have Snorri Sturluson, who's a medieval Christian and a very learned medieval Christian. And his attempt to find out, you know, what was like the story out of competing stories has a very Christian bent to it, right? What is the, if you will, orthodox pre-Christian story is what he's looking for. And there wasn't one, right? These stories deferred from place to place and time to time. In the poems of the Poetic Edda, uh, linguistics can help us here. Some poems definitely have archaic linguistic characteristics. I mean, and, but of course, you know, there's, there's questions here because you can imitate an earlier language style if you know that is an earlier language style. So, for example, people today, when they want to sound old-fashioned, they may throw in a thou or a the, or they might add us to various words. Most people don't know where to use thou. Most people don't know where to add that us, but they have kind of a sense of what sounds old-ish. Someone like you or me might actually be able to do a pretty passable job of putting those us in the right places putting Val in the right places. So you have to wonder if there's people who do know how to do that at a later stage and can make something look artificially more archaic. I hesitate to think so if someone, so if you have language features that make something work as a good poem in the 900s AD, but that poem is written down in the 1200s AD, I tend to think that a 1200s poet is not going to be willing to make, quote, 
bad poetry to make it sound more archaic. That makes me say, okay, this is a legitimately archaic poem that's being passed down orally by people who no longer understand why it's it even works as poetry, but they're passing it down and then getting written about in the later period. That that kind of thing, I think, is actually fairly secure. And we do have poems like that. And then we have poems that are just so confused in their transmission. It's like, what? Like we can't even tell what the word is like a third of the time. There's a poem in the Poetic Edda Hemisky, the one about Thor fishing for um, the Mythgar serpent. There's so many just completely garbled words in the transmission of that poem, which, I mean, that also tends to make me think, well, this is legitimately archaic. It's being passed down by people who don't understand what they're passing down at all anymore to the point they don't even know what word to write. That gives me a little bit more confidence. Um, then you have little details that wind up being preserved from the actual pre-Christian period. So, for example, um, Snorri in his prose edda, when he's talking about the story of Thor fishing for the Midgard serpent, says that Thor struggled so hard with his fishing rod that his foot shot out of the bottom of the boat. And in fact, there is a Viking Age picture stone from Sweden that depicts Thor standing in a boat with his hammer fishing for the Midgard serpent with his foot going out the bottom of the boat. So that's a detail, you know, Snorri didn't see this stone. So that's a detail that seemed to be legitimately passed down from an earlier, an earlier period. So I don't think that any particular poem or story in the Prosetta is exactly what anyone was saying in the pre-Christian period. But I think that it often is largely pre-Christian material. I think for the casual enthusiast here who doesn't really, who does not have access to, to someone who can tell them this or who just isn't going to go and try to dig this up, I think it's it's really handy and helpful to know this. But also, I'm kind of curious, one thing that Greek and Roman mythology also have is a concept of a very linear timeline for their mythology. But one thing that makes Norse mythology a bit harder for the lay person to sort of grapple with is this idea of cyclical mythological time. And I wonder, does the cyclical nature of mythology make it harder and a bit more inaccessible for people to understand? I don't actually know that the Norse have a cyclical view of time. That, that is a notion that's become pretty popular. It's based largely on the fact that we hear that Ragnarok will come and all the gods will die and just about all the people will die and the earth will be destroyed. But then we hear the earth will be reborn. There will be a few god survivors or a couple gods come back from the dead. A couple of humans will survive and there will be this paradise. But at least one of the monsters that fought the gods will survive too. So it kind of implies a cycle, but it never actually says that it's a cycle. As far as we know, there's one Ragnarok the world is reborn once. Yes, evil is reborn too, but it doesn't say like, and there's a constant cycle of Ragnarok and rebirth. Um, that's just an implication that people have drawn from it, but I'm actually not willing to draw from it. I'm kind of agnostic on the question, but I don't think they have a particularly cyclical view of time. Fair, fair. I don't know much about it, but I, I picked up one of the sort of beginning of Norse mythology books that I have, um, the scholar who wrote it posited that it is more cyclical than others. So I just read a whole section on it, which is why I got thinking about it. Well, it's, it's an opinion that's out there. I, I just, you know, I'm not particularly persuaded. I don't see a whole lot to, 
to ever make me think they're all that cyclical in their way of thinking about stuff. I mean, I think it's a, it's really good to see both sides and hear both sides of the debate, honestly. So you are a linguist, and so I am very happy to be able to ask this. So when I, I studied abroad in the UK for a semester, and I was sort of tricked into taking a Scandinavian civilization course or it was it was it had some name like that um they they clearly marketed it as a as a viking course so when they were coming and trying to get people to enroll um the professor came in wearing like a viking helmet and was like let's learn about the vikings and i was like okay this is strange but sure it's different from what i do so let me take it and then i was very disappointed that it there were like two lectures on the vikings and then the rest was like m- more modern like 17th 18th century scandinavian history and then i was like okay well that's this isn't a viking course that's two lectures so now i'm disappointed from what i gathered and and from what i've been able to to learn is it's quite interesting i find it quite interesting that they say that icelandic is the closest thing we have to old norse um, and so I'm wondering if you agree with this one, and then it's kind of a two-parter, I guess. How or why is that so when I feel like when people think of Vikings, you don't really think of Iceland first. You'll think of Norway and Denmark and then a little bit of, of Sweden, um, which are not really next to Iceland. So I feel like why wouldn't norwegian or danish be closer yeah so the the first part of that uh icelandic is definitely structurally uh and in terms of vocabulary the most like old norse of any living language icelanders are reasonably able to read old norse texts um i say reasonably able because this gets exaggerated part of the exaggeration is because mostly those old norse texts are changed into modern Icelandic spelling for a modern Icelandic audience. And I have met Icelanders who were not aware Old Norse spelling was different from modern Icelandic spelling. And so like they're at a little bit more of a disadvantage if it's actually presented as Old Norse qua Old Norse and not modernized spelling. The difference for a language written in the 1200s to today, really strikingly low, it's more like the difference from um, Shakespeare or the King James version of the Bible, especially if you take like first folio spellings uh, to to modern present day English. It's more like Old Norse than the continental languages. Um, there's a phenomenon in linguistics, uh, provincial conservatism. Languages on the periphery spoken by isolated communities tend to change somewhat at a slower rate than languages spoken in more central places uh, with a more cosmopolitan. Uh, I mean, this is true of English too. If you look at the UK, uh, London English, especially if you consider strata of London English, uh, like Cockney, has changed pretty fast, does change pretty fast continually from generation to generation. But uh, there's a lot of really conservative features in, say, Scottish or Welsh or Hiberno English that are not present in Southeast England. Same thing, sort of, in the U.S., country dialects broadly speaking, often have archaic features relative to city dialects. And so Iceland is just a, an example of this writ large. It's a community that's isolated for a long time. Another thing is that it was a pretty literate society from pretty early on. 
And if you have a written standard to compare your spoken language to, that can act as a little bit of a break on language change. So today, for example, um, in the history of English, the T disappeared in, you know, often, O-F-T-E-N. But because it's there in writing, people say it. So it like it, that, that kind of spelling pronunciation can semi-artificially preserve older features too in a, in a really literate population. So yeah, like it, it's, it's not really a surprise that Icelandic would be more conservative linguistically than Danish or Norwegian or Swedish. It's maybe just a little bit of a surprise that it's as linguistically conservative as it is. But there are other languages that are comparatively conservative. Uh, Lithuanian is one. Lithuanian has remained very, very, very structurally conservative. So. Interesting. Little fun phenomenon. Now, as a linguist, I do have just a fun little question. If you could bring back any letter from Old Norse to the modern alphabet, what would you bring back? Uh, well, the Icelanders do still use thorn, right? The, the letter for uh, right? The, the sound in thorn or, or thin or, or theater. Um, I would bring that back because, uh, I mean, it's not a combination of T and H. It is its own distinct sound. It's an androgenal fricative. In my own writing for myself, for probably 20 years, I have used Thorn and, and the voiced equivalent Ev in, in English, although only really for myself. Uh, it does make writing a little bit faster and not having to write the two letters. I won't disagree with you because I, I did see somewhere on the internet someone had like written a full on English sentence, but instead of writing th, they'd put thorn. But the only thing going through my mind as I sort of read it silently in my head was, wow, you would either know what this is or you would just think that the person who wrote this has a really big lisp. Thank you. Because the the problem is that if you're not used to reading it, thorn looks like P. In fact, um, as someone who has to look for Icelandic books and libraries all the time, I have this, you know, groaning acknowledgement that I usually have to search for anything, any thorn in the title as a P because <laughs> most librarians don't know what thorn is. And I have to search for this P. I think if you did bring back one of the letters into English realistically, it would have to be Ev because it looks less like an existing letter. Although again, searching for Icelandic books and libraries, I usually know people are going to assume that's an O and stuff, but then in old Norse or old English or Icelandic, there's actually not many P's, right? P is, is actually a pretty rare sound in old Germanic languages. There's not that many P's for it to get confused with. It is if you're not a modern person, I guess. So I, I want to get to the poem. The last question I do want to ask is, so as someone who professionally gets to be surrounded by old Norse culture and studies it professionally, we have a lot of Viking adaptations, a lot of movies, TV shows, plays, video games, you name it. Now, most of them do center on either Ragnar Lothbrok or, or something, right, from proper Scandinavia. So I'm curious, for anyone who's who's interested, do we have something that's more based off of Icelandic or not really and you know if there isn't is there something you'd like to see done adapted that would be different from the sort of norm that we oh, have? i think several sagas would actually make pretty good movies or tv adaptations i think so i've never actually seen the vikings tv show although the video i released today was commenting on some old norse language scenes in it 
but those were gathered by somebody else. I think that show is based somewhat on the yeah the legendary material about Ragnar Lothbrok. Although even that's mostly not the Icelandic material; it's mostly the Danish material about him. I translated the Icelandic material about him in my second book, The Saga of the Volsungs, with the Saga of Ragnar Lothbrok. Trying to think if there is something that's a little bit more Icelandic based. There's a few not great movies from the '80s that you can find here and there. There's, there was an Icelandic movie called The Outlaw. It almost uses the saga of Gisli Sorsen as a script. Uh, there's another one called The Raven Flies, which is kind of a smash up of a bunch of sagas. There's one from 1995, The Guy You Hire If Arnold Schwarzenegger Doesn't Return Your Calls. I can't remember what his name is, but it's called The Viking Sagas. Um, all of these movies, you know, fairly low quality. The Outlaw, at least, is based on a real saga. You know, the, the Northman that came out last year, a lot of that is set in Iceland, so I guess that's more like the sagas. Although, personally, I found that movie really boring and, and not spiritually much like the sagas. So I feel like that stuff is kind of lacking out there. But, big asterisk, I'm a huge curmudgeon about these things. I don't like movies to Viking media, and I avoid it assiduously. So there may be stuff out there that I'm just not aware of and I'm never going to see because the last thing I want to do in the evening is watch some Viking show. It makes sense. Not all classicists love any kind of reception-y material because it's too close to work and you do want to delineate between your work life and professional life. And I think it does get lost sometimes that for people who study this stuff, we may not actually want to see every 300 kind of adaptation that ever crosses our path unless you're, you know crazy into reception <laughs> i always laugh at this because people act like it's some professional dereliction if i don't know something about like the actors in the vikings tv show you know there's a whole lot of material that actually survives from medieval iceland that i spent a lot of time in grad school learning and i'm not a fanboy of the show that you like people are such evangelists for the media they consume you know i, I don't return the favor i don't try to get you to listen to the music that i listen to or whatever it annoys me that people do this. The other thing is, I'm not going to live forever. My day doesn't last forever. If I'm going to spend an hour not working, I live in Colorado. I'm not going to watch a TV show. I'm going to go outside. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it is kind of like the unspoken thing, right? That unless you sit down and explain it, it, it people just don't. People like to assume that if, if it's your professional passion, then they assume that, oh, well, this built off of some other passion so you must have you must know everything about your subject including all of the media that's ever been done because you know who are you if you don't know yes and with me because there's such a, a, a norse pagan subculture that's grown up now i so often get this almost indignant question like you're not a pagan it's like well no right i mean i but pe people get really surprised about it sometimes. Like, well, how can you be so dedicated to the subject and translate this material and not believe in it pretty easily? <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't, I don't understand how this is such a, uh, a, a big question to some people. But, uh, but it is. Um, you know, I, I'm not saying anything against Norse pagans. A big part of my audience is, is Norse pagans, but I'm not personally one. And I don't understand that there has to be a direct connection between being interested in this and, you know, worshiping Odin. So. I totally agree. I mean, I think when I do occasionally encounter this type of thing, but obviously not pagan, but um, I think my response is, you know, well, there are plenty of scholars who study both Christianity and Judaism that are not Christian or Jewish. So why is it 
implied that if you study it, you should be the thing. But also, I, I'm coming from a very academic background, so I, 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 you know, I'm used to it, but maybe... This expectation is not evenly distributed. Like, classicists don't run into this the same way. Like, oh, you don't have an altar to Hercules? And then, and then my favorite counterexample is, well, my best friend is a paleontologist, and he never dresses like a dinosaur. You know, like, he's not convinced that he's a dinosaur. Like, I just don't understand... <laughs> This expectation that you have to be what you study. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, we get, well, classicists maybe don't deal with that as much, but I feel like I deal with it on the more cultural, like people, people, when they know that I love Greece so much and I just eat, breathe and sleep Greek culture, they're quite surprised when I say, you know, Greek music is not one of my favorite genres at all. Like, I enjoy it if I go to Greece and I'm in, like, a taverna. But when they're like, what do you mean you're not out here, like, listening to, like, Helena Paparizou, like, every second of your life? I'm like, well, I don't, I, you know. So it's it's quite surprising when people hear that, like, uh, traditional Celtic music is my favorite. I note that you're not wearing a toga. And this and this really confuses me. Oh no! I left my toga at home, and I left my olive wreath at home because obviously I wear it as a as, as a tiara every day because I I look so extra. But no, I unfortunately don't have any of this, and you know I don't even have a a, a statue of Athena anywhere on my desk. I'm disappointing the entire classics world and all of its fans. But I get this all the time, right? Like like well. The, the surprise that I don't dye my hair blonde and grow a two foot long beard and have, you know, meal near tattooed on my fist or something. It's, it's like, I, that's not who I am. Right. I mean, I have my own culture of my own life. It's actually part of why I so deliberately have, have never changed how I dress. You know, like I, I wear a cowboy hat pretty often. It's just how I grew up. It's like, I, deliberately kind of cultivate the dissonance because it's like i am not I, I i kind of want people to know even though it probably hurts me with some of my audience it's like i i'm not telling you this because this is what i want to be I'm, I'm actually a pretty neutral source and i want you to appreciate because i go home and don't try to be this yeah well you know i i am so shocked that you don't have a pet raven that just lands on your shoulder all the time tisk, well tisk. that part is actually like i I, I, I'd probably really enjoy that as a, as a huge bird person. Um, there's probably some raven something I can reach out and grab from here. You can be forgiven because the bird thing actually is like a very contemporary passion. So, you know, bird watching, bird, there's there's so many things. So, okay, we can, we can forgive that one. I mean, there's so much in this discussion and, and all the media stuff that, you know, we would be sitting here until we're both dead dust before we got through it all so i i unfortunately have to to cut that that um cut that off but you know people can enjoy that lovely snippet but i did want to ask you right before we get to the poem when you were in school and you can use either undergrad or grad school or both did you attend office hours yeah uh, i did i mean just for example if i were working on some major translation or something, yeah, I would go run that by my professor and officer, for sure. Do you have a favorite memory, just in terms of, like, an experience, a fun conversation, just something wild that happened during one of these office hours? And it can be the official or even unofficial, right? The office hours doesn't have to be sitting in an office. Yes. 
my great professor, Dr. Klein at the University of Georgia is such a language genius. I mean, truly one of these people who just sees languages as algebraic and just learns them almost instantaneously, it seems like. Um, famously went to Lithuania, knowing no Lithuanian, just studied how it was derived from Indo-European and yet communicated with people. But yeah, you know, sitting in his office and him pulling out a book from the shelf and says, oh, I've got just the, I've got just the reference for you. Uh, do you read Serbo-Croatian? Like, uh, no. It's like, well, you've got a plane trip coming up. Just learn it on the plane. Learn Serbo-Croatian on the plane. <laughs> it's like, that's, it's like, that sounds realistic to you. <laughs> like, I doubt my ability to acquire a reading knowledge of this language in two hours, but okay. It's just the kind of guy he was. What he is, I mean, like, I mean, he was as my advisor, but now he's somebody else's advisor. But that's still his program. That's incredible. I wish I could learn languages just like snapping my fingers and being like, I got this. I can get this. So that's a that's a skill. That's a skill. I mean, I'm just I'm quite envious of, of polyglots. I have a friend who's a hyper polyglot, speaks like nine languages, eight of them pretty fluently. And I'm like, well, <laughs> I'm I'm not on that level. I never will be. But I'm, I'm decent at languages, but uh, but a lot more of it is is interest than, you know, inherent talent. You know, I think learning languages, a fun, rewarding, but very hard experience. So if you have the wherewithal to even want to pick them up, I think it's admirable either way. Being an educator yourself and have, having taught at several institutions, if you were to give like a, you know, 30 second to a minute long elevator pitch for why students should go to office hours, what would you say? Uh, your instructors are not expecting you to come to office hours, so they will remember you better. But the students that I remember best are the ones who came to office hours. That certainly comes up in writing letters of recommendation. You know, if I had a class of 300 students, the ones I'll actually write letters for are the ones whose names I remember, and those are typically the ones who came to office. It's a good reason as any. Um, and professors are fun. I my my favorite one decided that she was going to help me, like teach me how to do taxes because I came to her office and I was just like in a panic one day and I was complaining about life and I don't know how to do my taxes and she's like, "Do you want me to teach you?" So I got tax help and then I benefited from her chocolate drawer. So best of both worlds. Well, anyway, at the end of each podcast, I ask if each guest will read a copy of Shelley's Ozymandias poem. And then once you've read it, um, I'd be curious to just get your thoughts on, you know, what does this poem mean to you? What do you think it means? And it is continually cited as a poem that is, um, I, I want to say like, kind of timeless, kind of um, greatly admired. And I, wanted, I would love to know if, if uh, you agree with that sentiment. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I met a traveler from an antique land who said two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor, well those passions red, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear, my name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and lovable sands stretch far away. Suppose my take on it, such as it is, is probably a pretty common one. It's an awesome poem. I was a big Breaking Bad fan and appreciated the shout-outs to it in the last season. Um, there was even a promo for the last season that had uh, Brian Cranston reading it pretty memorably. I mean, as a statement of, of what lasts and what doesn't, I think that it's as good a reminder as any. Terribly memorable. Somehow, reading it, I, I sort of feel the heat of the desert. Um, Shelley's an evocative poet all around. I think that's worthily... Uh, considered his best but yeah i totally agree this has been my favorite poem since i first read it i want to say when i was in middle school but i f i don't remember if i read it in middle or high school but it's been my favorite poem since then and you're right it's this idea that it evokes a sense of monumentality you know kind of questions what qualifies what is monumental what is legacy what is long-lasting um the fact that you know Shelley writes this poem and he's basing it off of a statue of Ramesses that is being transported to the British Museum back when he wrote it in like the 1800s and was very inspired the way that he describes it sort of from a third person angle is very interesting and from you know just just having studied classics it's a quite brilliant memento mori a reminder that we will die which i really love but i also love it because i find it personally to be a political statement by shelley just on um 
the nature of, of power, especially political power, but all, all power, really. And if we're considering the poem in this way that I believe Shelley intended us to, if we stop and consider our contemporary society right now, do you think we have like a modern Ozymandias, like something we thought was so great and will last forever and is amazing and and it will, you know, never go sort of out of fashion. But realistically, will humans in three, four, five hundred years think the same? I think any given pop culture thing is much more fleeting than people act like it will be. The thing that reminds me the most of Ozymandias is this Akkadian poem called the dialogue of pessimism have you ever read that no i have not but i want to look it up now yeah that's uh, a master talking to his servant the master keeps saying i'm going to do this or that and the servant says first oh that's a good idea master but then he gives him some other side of it that's kind of negative and then the master says well then i won't do it and then the servant sort of says well but if you don't do it, like so, so the servant kind of keeps showing different sides of different things he considers it's not very long, but one of the things he says is, oh, well, I'm going to, I'm going to do something great for the city. And the servant says, oh, yes, you know, and, and there'll be a great monument to you. And the message says, well, yeah, maybe I won't. And the servant says, yeah, go up to the hill where uh, the dead are carried and tell me which skulls belong to the men who did great service for the city and which ones belong to the criminals. <laughs> like, yeah, it's, it's very Ozymandias sounding. It's great. You can find, I, I, I think there's some website by an Acadianist that has a translation of it. Definitely have to check that out. <laughs> I've been um, playing my way through a historical video game because I do archeo game both personally and professionally, but um, I've been playing my way through um, House of Ashes. It's one of the like horror games uh, done by Supermassive Games, um, the same people who did Until Dawn, and they set theirs based off of Sumerian mythology with the curse of Akkad. And so it's got all this cool ancient stuff and um, they really go deep into the curse. And um, that brought up a lot of Ozymandias type things of the sack of the temple at Nippur and then building this massive temple to sort of absolve Naram Sin of, of, of his faults. And um, they thought that was going to stand. And then, well, at least in the game, you know, it gets destroyed like that. And then you're like, Oh, well, that didn't last. And by the way, if you want to talk to an Acadianist, I know an Acadianist, so I can connect you to an Acadianist. So. Please, please. I want all of the people who do all the cool ancient things. So I'm always, always 100% willing. Well, I know people, I, I could probably connect you with someone who could talk about just about any ancient language. So there's a, so honestly, if there's some, something you're looking for, like I want to talk to a Hittite guy or something like that, let me know. I can connect you to people. So just email me. <laughs> the answer is always going to be yes. And I want it all. If you were looking for someone in a particular field, just let me know. Just email me. I, I can connect you to somebody. Probably. Oh, amazing. Thank you so much. Well, anyway, the last question that I'm going to ask you, cause I kind of, I, <laughs> the last question is going to be very easy. Where can people find you? Because I want to connect people to your work, both, you know, just like all the cool things, all the books and the YouTube channel. I mean, we'll, we'll link everything in the show notes, but so they can, you know, if they're not able to write it down. Yeah, if you search for Jackson Crawford, you, you'll find me pretty fast. There are other Jackson Crawfords, including a guy who's written apparently some pretty popular cookbooks. But if you go on Amazon and you search for Jackson Crawford, the North Smith books are by me. The cookbooks are not. You know, YouTube and search for Jackson Crawford, you'll, you'll find me pretty fast. I have a website, jacksonwcrawford.com where there's a list of 
videos that semi-regularly updated. So yeah, I'm not, not too hard to find anymore. Sounds good. Well, we'll make sure that we will go and we will link everything so people can, can find you. And, and we also want to link your Patreon so more people can come on and, and support you because we are... We here at the Ozymandias Project are very, very committed to lifting up people's scholarship, but also making sure they can pay their rent and eat because those are important things because academia is hard. I appreciate it. Uh, so my, my social media tag is usually Norse by Southwest, Norse by SW. So uh, my Patreon is patreon.com slash Norse by Southwest. Just Norse by SW. That's fantastic. Well, I love the play plan with words there so thank you thank you so much for agreeing to do the podcast and coming on and, and um, having a great discussion with me this morning i so so appreciate it well thank you it's it's been very nice great questions and uh yeah all the best to you and your audience trireme transit is now departing ancient office hours next stop is present ponderings Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.